what we see as one of the most interesting findings of our research is what we call routinization of risk. This is a belief that the behavior is acceptable because others also engage in similar behavior, right? So our students would say they rationalize their risky behavior by comparing themselves to their peers who they say also take similar actions and have remained safe. Meet Dilshani Sedas Chandra, an assistant professor at the University of Idaho. Dilshani is a sociologist who studies risk assessment. She focuses not on the calculations behind risk assessment, but how our human emotions and feelings influence what we consider risky behavior. And it turns out, we're really terrible at figuring out what's risky and what isn't. Dilshani has spent her career studying this odd dichotomy between real and perceived risky behavior, including a number of studies on people's trust in science and cybersecurity risk among college students. Welcome, everyone, to The Vandal Theory. Hi, everyone. My name is Lee Cooper, and I'm a science writer here at U of I and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research from the University of Idaho. Throughout the second season of the podcast, we're going to meet U of I researchers and learn about the questions they're trying to answer, the problems they want to solve, and what intrigues them about their research. Dilshani sat down with me to discuss risk and where we place our trust. So, Dilshani, welcome today to The Vandal Theory. Can you introduce yourself real quick for everyone before we get started? Yes, thank you for having me. So my name is Dilshani Sarachandra. I'm an assistant professor of sociology with the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Idaho. So most people, when, you know, we ask them what they study, they say, you know, I study trees or I study climate change or I study <laughs> something else. You have studied a bunch of th different things across the board, mm -hmm. and that's because your kind of anchor point is sociology. Yeah, I think that is kind of the beauty of sociology, right? We are interested in human behavior in society, which is vast. We can bring in the methodological tools and theoretical approaches of sociology to pretty much anything that happens between humans in society. Broadly, my research focuses on three things. I am interested in processes of decision-making that happens in science, particularly in scientific laboratories. I am also interested in public attitudes towards science and technology. And I have also done some research related to social dimensions of health. And I know um, one of the things that you've done is, mm -hmm. is risk assessment as right. well. I mean, risk assessment, usually you think of that as, as almost a, a numbers game. You know, exactly what proportion of the population mm -hmm. actually is at risk for something. Mm -hmm. But it is more challenging than that when you actually get into the real world. So where does risk assessment cross over into mm -hmm. sociology? I guess I'll start with a bit of the backstory. Sure, right? absolutely. Why I'm interested in these topics. So broadly, I'm interested in where points of contention emerge when we try to integrate science and technology into society, right? And then once we try to integrate advanced scientific and technological methods into society, the way experts view these technological and scientific advancements don't always align with public perceptions. Can you give us an example of mm -hmm. technology that, when it went out into the real world, mm -hmm. maybe didn't go quite as planned? Right. So we were talking about, you were talking about risk assessment as a numbers game earlier, right? Mm -hmm. So often when we think about risk assessment, we think about technical assessments of risks, right? So for instance, how do experts characterize and quantify risks? And how do we apply those quantifications into areas that we are interested in, such as natural disasters or assessing crime and terrorism? And where 
social scientists come in, especially sociologists, psychologists, and people who are in cultural studies, they try to think about risk more broadly. So for instance, when you ask the majority of the public what they are worried about, what particular risks they are concerned about, or when we have to make decisions in really uncertain environments, we don't often have uh, the time or the technical knowledge or even the um, analytical skills to engage in these probabilistic risk assessments. So in those situations, what we often do as the lay public is to use our intuition, right? So we engage in intuitive judgments of risks. Um, we bring in our subjective experiences about risks when we have to make decisions about uncertain scenarios, right? So as social scientists, then we are really interested in not just the technical assessments of risks, but how people determine what is risky to them, right? And that's where the, the misalignment comes, that expert risk assessments don't always align with public perceptions of risks and how the public respond to risks. So the numbers folks can crunch all the numbers they want. Yes. But if average Joe on the street, one, mm -hmm. doesn't mm -hmm. know those numbers. Right. Or two, doesn't really believe those numbers or doesn't yeah. really, or has all these other misgivings or mm -hmm. different different feelings, mm -hmm. mostly feelings, I guess, about the subject, Right. you're going to come up with a very, very different actual public reaction. Yeah. So just to give you an example, nuclear power is a really good example okay. of this, right? So technically, ex people who have technical expertise often think about nuclear power as something that's quite safe. Disasters involving nuclear reactors have been very few, and yet there's large public aversion um, towards nuclear technology in the United States and across the world, right? So while experts judge nuclear power as very low in risk and the probability of negative consequences manifesting in uh, nuclear reactors, people judge benefits to be quite small compared to risks when it comes to nuclear technology, which has led to a lot of public aversion to this technology. So let's bring in an example from your work. I know you mm -hmm. said you've done work about the public perception of science. Yes. And I mm -hmm. believe you've done some work on how people see scientific retractions. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what kind of findings you, you found in that case? Yeah. So one thing that is really important um, in the area of risk perception is what factors affect public perceptions of risk, right? So personal experience is really important. Someone who's experienced something like a flood or a wildfire or some other natural disaster may have very visceral reactions to thinking about what another similar experience might lead to. Another thing that's really important is trust in information sources and mm. credibility of information sources, right? So when we consider things like climate change, for instance, um, which is another project that I'm involved with with my colleague Kristen Holtiner, um, many of us don't have direct expertise to assess climate data, for instance, right? Our There's a ridiculous amount of data out there. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, our understandings of climate change essentially is climate change happening? Are human causes affecting climate change? Those things are often reliant on our trust of the scientific community, the actual climate scientists who conduct that kind of research, right? Mm -hmm. So trust and credibility of information sources is very, very important to public understanding and assessment of risk. And the reason why I bring this up is 
in issues related to scientific retractions too, this is really important, right? So scientific studies get retracted for many different reasons. Sometimes True. they're related to misconduct. So occasionally plagiarism, self-plagiarism, fraudulent data. There's actually uh, like a bad scientist. Right. The bad there scientist. could be bad <laughs> scientists, but those cases are very, very rare. More often, scientific studies get retracted for things like honest mistakes, right? Someone might make a mistake or a replication study. Might, someone might not be able to replicate their previous studies. So scientists, in order to correct um, the existing scholarly um, literature, they may request a retraction. But because media portrayals often sensationalize misconduct, even though misconduct is Those are the ones rare. that make the headlines. <laughs> right. Um, because of that, whenever we hear the word retraction, we tend to assume that that indicates something shady has happened. We put them all in the same box, That's whether right. it's bad scientists versus more kind of what happens in the scientific process. Right, definitely, yeah. So what we've found in our research is we've conducted some um, survey-based experiments to kind of understand how people react to different media portrayals of scientific retractions. And what we've found is that when people are told that a scientific article is retracted due to misconduct, that tends to lead to declining trust in the scientific community which is pretty intuitive, right? If you see the scientific community as not trustworthy or not credible, then you're less likely to believe um, their findings or outcomes of scientific research. And that matters because often, again, going back to issues like vaccines or climate change, where we don't have firsthand um, knowledge, where we have to rely on experts to determine whether these things are pose actual risks to human health or well-being or the natural environment, we have to rely on expert perceptions, expert assessments, right? So breaking that trust and credibility then becomes a big problem. Um, one of the other studies that I know that you have gotten involved with mm -hmm. is college students and their perception of cybersecurity risk. That's right. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about uh, some of the work you've done there? Yeah, so I got involved in this project because I'm affiliated to our university center for secure and dependable systems. Um, and this is a big center that includes a lot of um, interdisciplinary collaboration. The idea is to bring large scale collaborations to kind of understand how to develop more secure and dependable computing systems. Uh, me and my colleague, Kristen Holtiner, who is an associate professor in the Department of School sociology, and our uh, undergraduate researcher at the time, Nicole Lichtenberg, um, we started this project in 2015 to try to understand college students' levels of awareness about cybersecurity, what they view as risks in online environments, and how they manage those online risks. You went out, You what did you end up doing? Did you end up right. um, talking to students or having mm -hmm. them fill out surveys or anything? Yeah, so this was a two-year project. We had two phases. In 2015, the three of us conducted a series of in-depth interviews with students, undergraduate students at our university. And then in 2016, we developed an online survey using some of our findings from the interviews. And then we um, distributed it to a random sample of students 
who were enrolled at our university in 2016. So our research then combines both the qualitative findings from the interviews and the quantitative findings from the surveys to try to understand students' awareness about cybersecurity, what they view as risks, and um, how what kind of strategies they use to protect themselves while they engage in online spaces. So straight away, are, are college students good at assessing risk on cybersecurity, and are they doing the right things to protect themselves? Well, that's an interesting <laughs> question. Um, yes and no. <laughs> okay. Um, so in, in some ways, so much of the past research, who researchers who have looked at these issues, talked a lot about risks in the cyberspace involving, for instance, internet overuse and addiction, um, huh. or cyberbullying, um, or so- certain social media behavior and effects. For example, does social media increase your social capital because it gives you more networking opportunities? Or does social media lead to more antisocial behavior, right? Like social isolation or even depression and anxiety, right? Um, so Which our, are definitely different questions than right. whether you're going to get your credit information stolen. Yes, definitely. So our students um, had... A, a pretty good awareness about these issues, such as the risks of addiction or overuse, right? What we see as one of the most interesting findings of our research is what we call routinization of risk. This is a belief that the behavior is acceptable because others also engage in similar behavior, right? So our students would say they rationalize their risky behavior by comparing themselves to their peers who they say also take similar actions and have remained safe. So uh, when our mothers yelled at us for if our friend was going to jump off a bridge, (laughs) (laughs) you would too, uh, is... is uh, alive and well. <laughs> yeah, and, and and this is this is interesting and kind of actually it makes sense for to sociologists because our behavior is often influenced by what sociologists call reference groups, right? So the reference groups are groups that we compare ourselves to um, or those who I who we identify with. So students, their reference groups are often their peers, um, and if they believe that their peers engage in these behaviors and are relatively safe, then they are less likely to be concerned about those, right? So for example, using public Wi-Fi to conduct online shopping or check your bank account. While if you ask students, is it safe to use public Wi-Fi to conduct um, banking, they would say no. Do you ever do that? They would say yes. And, <laughs> and the reason for doing that is this idea of routinization of risk, right? Everyone else does it, and therefore I don't necessarily feel vulnerable about that. <laughs> The logic of that is aces. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what is so what are some of the, the biggest risks that our, our students are taking? So if you think about college students who are currently in college, uh, millennials, Generation Z, these are people who internet is a way of life for them, right? There's this familiarity with the internet that you're not thinking about risks all the time while you engage with different online spaces, right? So one thing that our students said that they do quite often is to trust what they perceive as reputable websites, right? So our students would say, I do online shopping on Amazon all the time, and I trust Amazon to protect my credit card information um, or my um, transaction history, right? So this trust in what they perceive as credible sources 
is actually in 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 some ways it's reasonable because these are large multi-billion dollar corporations that we trust to 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 protect um that we tend to trust to protect our data but on the other hand this this trusting of what we perceive as credible sources is something that can be manipulated by nefarious actors right so if you think about phishing phishing is this fraudulent practice of sending emails purporting to be reputable companies but essentially my bank has reached out to me multiple times right. with not my bank. That's emails. right. That's right. So they are trying to induce individuals to reveal their personal information, such as passwords and credit card numbers, right? And often because this engaging online has become such a routine thing that we do, and we have, um, we feel a lot of self-efficacy that we are able to protect ourselves, that we feel like we are the people least likely to fall for something like a phishing attack. But what cybersecurity experts have found is that phishing attacks have gotten so incredibly sophisticated now, right? So the more we feel self-efficacy and we feel like we are protecting ourselves and we are letting our guard down, it is creating environments where sophisticated phishing attacks can actually lead us towards engaging in behavior that is not protecting ourselves. You know, yeah, you, uh, you're, you're always online and you're always you're thinking like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I'm never going to fall for it. And then you find yourself clicking the link, like never fit, like, ah. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we always want to be smarter, but right. never fails. Other than routine, are there any mm-hmm. other um, kind of trends that are a barrier for our students improving their cyber cybersecurity behavior? Yeah, another thing that we noticed is what social psychologists would often call optimistic bias. This is the perception that negative events are less likely to happen to one's own self compared to the average person, right? So social psychologists, and this has nothing to do with cybersecurity per se, but social psychologists have found, for instance, when you ask people what is the likelihood of someone getting cancer in their lifetime, it is about 30% in the United States. But when people are asked about their likelihood, they say it's about 10%, right? So we tend to underestimate the likelihood of negative events happening to our own selves. And we see that this optimistic bias also manufacturing in um, in the context of cybersecurity, right? So when we ask students, what is your likelihood of experiencing something like a phishing attack? They would say, this is something that happens to old people, <laughs> oh, that quote-unquote stupid people, right? <laughs> so you're less likely to believe that you can become a victim of a cybersecurity threat, and therefore you're less likely to take protective action. So with all the things you end up doing, I mean, you, you, you're working with, with you know, scientific retractions, you're working with people talking about climate change, you're mm-hmm. students in cybersecurity. That's so across the board. Mm-hmm. What in all of this, kind mm-hmm. of connecting all these things, what draws you to these types of studies? Yeah, so I think it goes back to my early experiences in the sciences. Um, I grew up in Sri Lanka. Um, I received a bachelor's degree in biotechnology from the University of Colombo in Sri Lanka. And as an undergraduate in the sciences, I had the opportunity to work in scientific laboratories. Um, My research involved working with a group of people who were trying to develop effective um, gene editing technologies in order to increase crop yields because Sri Lanka is an agriculture-based country. And while working in that scientific setting, I got very interested in public perception 
perceptions of advanced scientific um, methods and technologies, right? So, and then I had the opportunity to work with the Biotechnology Information Center, where our goal was to try and better communicate advanced scientific methods and technological um, advancements with the public. So I think the thing, the thread that connects all of my different interest areas is to try to understand how public, how people perceive scientific developments and technological advancements in order to develop better strategies to communicate science and technology. And risk perception and risk communication is part of that. Well, Dilshani, thank you so much for coming in today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. In addition to research in sociology, U of I has been doing great work in the agricultural and natural resource sciences. Here are a few projects in those areas that might interest you. A U of I-led team identified and cloned a gene that can fend off a major fungal threat to wheat and barley. The fungus, called striperus, can cut yields in half. This genetic advance should mean scientists can develop new wheat varieties that will produce more dependable yields and reduce the need for pesticides. In the College of Natural Resources, David Osband published a study on how wolves use the space around dens where they rear their pups. The study suggests that the closer the wolves are related to the pups, the more time they will spend rearing the young. This is true even for those wolves who haven't bred. Lastly, the U of I wants to create a dynamic new meat science center, and a $1 million gift from the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation took us one step closer. The new center will expand students' educational opportunities in animal processing. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to The Vandal Theory. You can check out our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory, for more details about the research I mentioned today. Read our show notes and email me with comments. Most importantly, we really want you to subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play, and we just added Spotify to the mix. Rate and review us, too. We've loved hearing from our listeners, and we really appreciate your support. And help spread the word about the great research being done at U of I by telling your friends and family about the podcast. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining me.